This is Catherine. I'm one of the editors for DFP. In today's episode, Eugene interviews Rochelle Barbar. She's a defendant for Omar Amin, an Iraqi refugee who's been in U.S. federal custody for three years on an extradition charge, even though there's a mountain of evidence that he's innocent of the crime he's accused of in Iraq. If Amin is sent back to Iraq, he'll almost certainly be killed there. Before listening to Eugene and Rochelle, I knew almost nothing about federal immigration cases or the mechanisms that can keep someone locked up and separated from their family, even after a federal judge ruled that Amin should be released. There was a powerful story written last year in January in The New Yorker that outlines how Amin landed in prison and how a year and a half later, he still remains behind bars. I highly recommend you check it out, and it's in audio format too if you're like me and you feel it's more approachable than just trying to read through one of those long New Yorker pieces. But first, here's Eugene and Rochelle. Divided Families podcast. Today, I have with me Rochelle Barber. She's an assistant federal defender at the Office of the Federal Defender for the Eastern District of California. It's a very long title. Um, she's been doing uh, incredible work on a very big and important case regarding a refugee named Omar Amin. And this was featured in a story in The New Yorker back in January of 2021. Um, and I'm sure Rochelle, you're very, very busy. <laughs> All federal defenders are very, very busy. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me oh, today. I'm, I'm happy to speak with you. Um, that article did come out January 2020. Oh, 2020. Uh, I thought it was 2021. Um, oh, well, I guess like that's a good segue into why I thought it was 2021 is because I learned about this case through uh, my friends. So I'm at Michigan Law School. Uh, some of my classmates were taking international refugee law second semester, which is January 2021. And um they sent me, they emailed me this article saying you should really interview uh, Rochelle. She's like a Michigan law alum too. So I was like, I'm too busy right now. <laughs> I'm going to punt this to the summer. And now finally we're here. But that's why, yeah, I thought that it was like current news um, at the time. Yeah, but... no, it, it's it's good that you waited because, you know, there's been a lot of changes since January 2021. So um, it's a great time to talk. Yeah, and I think that also makes a lot more sense because uh, once I go into the kind of a quick summary of the facts, yeah, this was like not super recent. I mean, it's been a very, very long. I, I mean, a lot of detention cases are really long. Do you, th- do you think this is like a particularly long one or is it kind of normal? Nothing is normal about this case. Okay. Um, no, this is, is Omar's been in custody. It'll be three years in a, in a couple of weeks. Um, he was arrested August 15th of 2018. So nothing's normal. Everything's unusual about this case, including the amount of time he's sat in custody as an innocent man. So just to backtrack a little bit, today is July 24th, Saturday, and his immigration hearing is scheduled for next week? Yes, yes. Now um, he's no longer in extradition court. He is in immigration court fighting against removal back to Iraq, um, which would result in the same thing we were fighting against in the extradition, his execution. Um, So his immigration hearing, or at least the first step of it, is set for this Tuesday and Wednesday, the 27th and 28th of July in Van Nuys, California, down by L.A. So I can just give a quick summary of the facts just to kind of start off, and then I'm sure that you can supplement, you know, 
far more than <laughs> I do. Um, but just for people who have been listening so far and they're like, who is Omar? What is going on? Um, so Omar Amin is a refugee from Iraq. He was living in the suburbs of Sacramento when he was arrested in his apartment in 2018. And he was accused of being an ISIS commander and wanted for the 2014 murder of a police officer um, in his hometown of Rawa, Rawa, um, Iraq, uh, during an ISIS invasion, according to the DOJ. So this is all just from their report. And then on April 21st, 2021, uh, a federal judge said he couldn't have done this. This is uh, Rochelle's work and her team's work um, that they successfully argued that this murder was physically impossible. Like he was not here or not there at that time. He was in Turkey. This kind of just obliterated the entire, you know, allegation. But uh, despite the judge's order to release him, he's still been in ICE facilities since then. And he's been, as you mentioned at the beginning, in custody for like over a thousand days, three years. So is there anything that you would want to add to clarify just those brief facts before we go in? It was obvious to us from the first month of the case that Omar hadn't done it. And we told DOJ that over and over and over and he, nonetheless, he spent three years in custody on a crime he didn't commit, had nothing to do with committing. The victim was murdered, and that family has no closure, in part because the U.S. government and the Iraqi government have sought to pin it on Omar, someone who had no nothing, nothing to do with it. Um, so it's, it's tragedies all around, I guess, except for the U.S. government, which has not suffered anything except... A defeat in court. And meanwhile, Omar is in custody and his family, his kids are growing up without him. So it's just a tragedy. Yeah. And just to zoom out a little bit, it's 2021. So sometimes I forget that the Trump administration happened. Uh, I mean, maybe I just like suppress the memory or something. Um, but and also with COVID time, like our conception of time has just changed. But um, just to zoom out a little bit, the New Yorker article by Ben Taub, which will be linked in the description, this is kind of what I'm going off of for the, my understanding of the case. And also, um, it's a really good article because it links the political climate of that time to kind of help unpack what was going on and like why, I don't know, like why the government was acting the way that it did at that time. So yeah, just to keep that in mind as we're in 2021, but this was happening in 2018. Um, one of the big questions that I have for Rochelle, though, is, is there a huge difference between, um, I mean, with the change in administrations, has there been a significant difference? So that's something that I'll ask. Oh, I mean, I could answer it now. It now yeah. And it's an easy answer. There's been no difference. And that is really horrible. I mean, it's, it, you know, it, it makes no sense to me um, that they continue to pursue Omar in this way. And there's been no change, no accountability, no will to say, huh, wow, that judge says he's innocent. Why did we go so wrong? And not only no accountability, no postmortem on it, but they're just they're trying to do the same exact thing. And they are fighting tooth and nail. Yeah, I want to get into that, but I think it'll make sense to start off with a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I know that we just went sure. through a lot of information for everybody. So just to zoom out and then we'll come back into that um, is, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, I guess, like how you, uh, I mean, obviously you went to the best law school in <laughs> Michigan, <blue>. <laughs> but um, other than that, uh, how did you kind of decide to work at the Federal Defender's Office? And also, uh, I guess one of my big 
goals for this episode is to make sure that it's not too law people talking yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, to make sure that you have to clarify for everybody else like what is a federal defender for people who might not know yeah sure so federal defenders are the public defenders for federal court so a lot of times when we think of public defenders we're thinking of state court because everyone's very familiar with the state court system you get called to jury duty you know there's at least in california there's one in every county um it's the crimes that we non-lawyers would be most likely to interact with, you know, street crime, assaults, stolen cars, that kind of thing, shoplifting. Um, but federal court is really different. And one thing that federal court does, which it does not happen at all in state court, is international extraditions. And uh, as public defenders for federal court, we're assigned to those just like we're assigned to you know, normal criminal cases. And so I've worked on them before. I like them. I find them very interesting. You have to look at the law of the other country. Um, you know, I've gotten to, I, I was a French major in college and don't get to use that very much. So no. I got to use that. Um, I had a case out of France, you know. So when Omar's case came, um, it was sort of a natural fit for me to work on it, though. You know, I certainly had no experience. I don't speak Arabic. I had no experience with, you know, Middle Eastern political issues or anything like that. So that's what public defenders do. I, like you said, went to University of Michigan Law School and then uh, I'm from the Midwest. And then I realized that you don't actually have to live in the snow for six months out of every year. So I moved to California and um, came to work here at the Federal Defender's Office in Sacramento. And uh, luckily at Michigan, I had you know, amazing professors, including Brian Stevenson taught at Michigan oh, wow. when I was a, a 3L and, you know, just just inspiring about um, the ways that are the power structures in our society manifest through criminal law and manifest against the most vulnerable of all of us and um, the real need and the real honor to fight on behalf of those folks against uh, people with incredible amount of power. I mean, putting someone in, in custody, putting someone to death. I mean, mm -hmm. that is a huge manifestation of the power of the state. And so it's a real honor to have done this now for 20 plus years. And uh, truly, I think Omar's case typifies exactly why we need public defenders. And honestly, it shows why folks in immigration custody need public defenders. Um, if Omar didn't have free immigration lawyers who are willing to take his case completely pro bono, he would just be ground down under the heel of the government. And I'm sure that's something they were counting on. And they didn't count that he would have folks, you know, working all weekend to prepare for this hearing next week. Mm -hmm. um, it's a really, you know, that's something we can talk about, but it's, it's a really horrible aspect of our system. Yeah, I think... Obviously, if a listener wants to be a federal defender, um, Michigan's a great place to do that. You know, we have a really strong <laughs> especially program. now. Yeah. Yeah. Especially now because they have wonderful um, public defender uh, institute now. So, yeah, it's great. Mm -hmm. um, so I went through kind of like the bare bones facts, but could you help us kind of understand Omar's like how did I said he was in Turkey? He couldn't have been in Iraq. Like, could you kind of explain the resettlement process um, and then also we had mentioned, you know, like the federal, uh, you successfully litigated, like this never happened. This is like impossible. Could you kind of bring us through not just the resettlement, but also later the layers of like false information involved in this case. And that's the really oh, complex sure. part. In half an me. hour. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no problem. I'll just summarize it. Um, I think one thing with him, with, uh, extradition law is it is very pro government. 
the sort of, I said nothing about this case is normal. So the normal extradition case is just kind of arm's length between two sovereign nations. France, for example. France says, we think that this person who is in the United States committed a fraud in France. And we, we France, you know, investigated and went to court and now we have an arrest warrant. And hey, U.S., could you do us a favor? We'd love to get them back because we would need to deal with this. And the U.S. says, oh, gosh, we didn't know we had someone charged with this crime. Sure. And I'm sure there's an internal process that goes into does the U.S. feel like doing this? Is this an important enough case to spend the resources? But ultimately what happens is, you know, it's very arm's length and the U.S. goes on behalf of France and arrests the person and puts them into extradition proceedings. And they get a public defender who makes sure that the procedure is done correctly and makes sure that there's probable cause, meaning enough proof that this person committed this crime in the other country to make it okay that we're going to send them off in custody and they're going to get prosecuted there. So that's it. I mean, that you know, there's treaties. These are a function of, two interna- of international treaties between two countries. Um, Iraq and the U.S., Iraq has never asked for someone to get returned before Omar that I'm aware. I mean, or if they've asked, it's never actually happened. Um, the treaty has been around since I think 1935. It was signed by the king of Iraq. So there's been a, quite a bit of history since then, right? Especially between the yeah. U.S. and Iraq. These are, just these a are not bit. two. Yeah. yeah, just a little. And like, these are not two countries that even just starting fresh have an arm's length relationship, right? I mean, the U.S. ran Iraq's judicial system under the, the coalition provisional authority for years. So, and we're still there, you know, in, in sort of a monitoring. Uh, We work very closely with Iraqi security forces. You know, we've been very instrumental in sort of who gets to be in charge in Iraq. You know, I think those are all facts anyone could agree to. So when Iraq asked for Omar to be returned, you know, that's that's a pretty intense first shot to say he's an ISIS commander Mm -hmm. hiding out in Sacramento. And he murdered someone in 2014 when ISIS took over. Iraq. I mean, 2014 was like the time when ISIS was just rampaging across northern Syria into Iraq, almost made it to Baghdad. And the Iraqi security forces had sort of let them, you know, sort of pulled back. Immediately, it was very clear that Omar had no idea what we were talking about, right? And was sort of like, hey, mister, you're you're charged with being an ISIS commander and, you're, and you know, killing this guy. And he was in Turkey at the time. I mean, the fact is he he's not an ISIS commander. He's not a terrorist. He wasn't in Iraq in 2014. He did not kill the victim. All of that became crystal clear, but we were still dealing with it in the context of um, a system that sort of says, is there enough evidence to send him back? It's not supposed to be a trial. It's supposed mm-hmm. to be, oh, you know, well, Sorry, might be the wrong guy, might not, but let's just send him back and he can have a trial in Iraq, which then begs the question what that looks like. And we know what that looks like. And in fact, I connected with Ben Taub from The New Yorker because his prior article mm-hmm. in um, December of, I think through 2018, had been a long exploration of the failures of the Iraqi criminal justice system, Mm. particularly with respect to people arrested for ISIS offenses. And it was chilling. It came, we read that article like maybe four months into Omar's detention here Mm -hmm. in Sacramento. And I remember the whole team was just like, like we just had chills because it was 10 minute trials and then you get executed. 
you know? Yeah. Um, and it sort of made us realize how ridiculous it was to sort of think, oh, we'll just send him back. And he can raise all his defenses and show he was in Turkey and then he'll be released. Mm-hmm. So that's some background on kind of the procedure and where we were at. Our backs were against the wall from the beginning. Mm-hmm. But then we started getting the evidence together, right? And he was in Turkey. Mm-hmm. And you asked about the refugee process. Yeah, that was a second layer that kind of goes into this <laughs> right. where it's like, like you said, he says, I mean, I was in Turkey, like I wasn't there at that time. So that's one thing. But the resettlement process, like the like the vetting that goes into resettlement, like refugees, that adds another layer of kind of, uh, I don't know, making it very difficult to believe that someone would risk everything so if you could kind of like help us understand that that would be great so there's the emotional side of things which is if you even if if you were a terrorist even if you were an isis commander who's trying to be top secret and sneaky and get into the u.s by the date of the murder omar and his family had been given permission to resettle in the u.s in fact just a couple weeks before the murder so even sort of thinking the counterfactual, like if someone is an ISIS commander or an ISIS, ISIS mm-hmm. you're going to start a sleeper cell in the U.S., they're not going to like risk it all by busting out to Iraq in the middle of a war. And, you know, it's not just to Iraq. I mean, you got Turkey, then you got Syria, mm-hmm. then you get to Iraq, right, um, with no passport because the Turks keep the passports of the refugees with a wife and three kids at home. You know, it, it didn't make sense right and i think that's like a powerful thing for anyone in these kind of cases is like sometimes your your gut is just like this makes no sense Mm -hmm. and then you're like okay we sit around like nerdy lawyers and say what if you were accused of a crime today right right this second eugene Mm -hmm. where you would say hey i was on a podcast with rochelle we have a recording Mm -hmm. right but what if it was four years ago yeah june 22nd Four years ago. Mm-hmm. How would you prove where you were? And then, you know, I think one thing that's amazing is we have social media, we have cell phones, you know, it's not, it would have been different 50 years ago. How would you prove where you were? You'd have mm-hmm. to call witnesses. And we actually talked to a ton of witnesses and got statements from all kinds of people saying not only he was with us in Turkey, but like, I know the guy, he was not in Iraq mm-hmm. and he's not an ISIS commander. But what we could do is go deeper. We could look at social media. We could look at the refugee process in Turkey, which thankfully for Omar is intense. You have to register. He was registered. You have to go weekly and you have to sign every Thursday at the immigration office. Mm-hmm. And he did that. And we actually, part of it was just the the investigation challenge of how do you get sign-in sheets from an immigration office in Turkey for a case in the U.S.? That's you know, four or five years later, by the time you get it and follow up on it, it's a different system. It's a different language. We got the sign-in sheets for June. He had signed in. Mm-hmm. So all of that helped. So it was building that case with layer upon layer upon layer. And one huge challenge was how do you, you know, in the U.S., I, I don't know how I would get my cell phone records, especially if I was trying to get like a ping from the tower by my house to show I was home right now. Mm-hmm. But how do you do it in Turkey? Yeah. Right. That's Turk cell. Mm-hmm. They don't have a system where you just kind of go subpoena or you kind of go request your own records. And this was four or five years prior by the time we were digging into it. Well, we cracked that system. We actually figured it out. 
but it took two and a half years to get his cell phone records. Mm -hmm. And they showed exactly what we'd been saying the whole time. You could see him pinging off towers in Merson in the town. Mm -hmm. And this is none of this is in the New Yorker article because, of course, this happened a year after. But you could see Omar, he rode a bicycle to work, and you could see him heading to work, going to the little spot where he worked, heading home. You could see him going to the pier where he would hang out with his friends and fish. Mm -hmm. That was huge. But we were still piling up evidence in a system that says, judge, who cares about their evidence? He can just have a trial in Iraq. Yeah. And our judge cared. Mm -hmm. You know, our judge gave us the time. And the one sort of tiny crack in that, let's assume the government evidence is true, is that if the defense obliterates probable cause, mm -hmm. then the judge should not send Omar back. And he held that we did. So that brings us kind of to now, because, of course, he didn't get out. A judge ordered him out, and the U.S. government decided, nope, he should just go into immigration proceedings now, and we'll just do it again. So I think that, I mean, I'm sure that listeners are probably then going to ask, a judge says he should go. <laughs> Why is he still in custody? Um, because we don't have the power in this situation. The U.S. government has the power in the situation. Mm -hmm. Prosecutors have the power, and they have the power to ruin people's lives. And in this particular case, they are using that power incorrectly. Incorrectly factually, incorrectly ethically, and the why, they'd have to answer. You know, mm -hmm. I can't answer for them. I ask myself that question all the time. How, how can people do this? Mm -hmm. Why do people do this? And I don't know. I think this is probably a good point to bring in the question from the beginning that I kind of alluded to, which was uh, you said that there was no big change between administrations. Do you have any kind of explanation for that, do you think? Or is it just because the people have changed, right? Or do the I mean, I'm assuming people change. Like, Well, I think, you know, the big bosses change, but the big bosses have a lot going on, right? Mm -hmm. This is one man fighting for his life, literally for to not be returned to Iraq to his execution. Mm -hmm. In Sacramento, now he's outside Bakersfield, California. The people on the top changed. And in fact, a lot of the people at the top haven't even been confirmed. I mean, we, yeah. you know, we don't have a new head of ICE. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we yeah, don't have now. a new head of, yeah. yeah, right. I mean, maybe by the time your listeners hear this, we will. But I don't know if there's lots of people have the, the power to say, this is ridiculous and outrageous and how can we do this and we need to stop many many people have the power to do that i'm not exaggerating i'm not sort of you know naive about it um, many people have the power to say hold up how did this happen we need to audit this we need to like look at this before we go further it just hasn't happened mm -hmm. and it's not that we haven't been asking we've been asking a lot uh, mm -hmm. we've been reaching out at multiple levels to say, hey, we're trying to save you guys from a huge mistake here. Mm -hmm. And um, no one seems to care. I, 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 I don't get it. They will have to answer for it at some point, I hope. I hope some point you get to ask those questions to someone who can actually give you an answer. Because yeah. as someone who believes in justice, I don't understand any of this. Mm. Well, I think that's a big question that we might just have to table a little bit since neither of us i don't have the answer so um, right. i have to table that one but i think the reason that i asked that is because in the article i was really uh taken aback by i mean i just like i said i kind of suppressed the trump administration entirely but like um <laughs> ben Tov writes a lot about um sessions and like the stoking fear of 
like certain types of refugees. And I think that this was the most interesting thing to me where, or one of the most interesting things to me was the thorough vetting process for refugees. Like to come to America and be resettled is like, you just won like <laughs> a crazy lottery. Right. Um, it's like people, I mean, yeah, I don't even like, I take it for granted for living here. You know, it's like, you just can't mm-hmm. get here. Um, and to like risk all of that by committing any kind of crime is just not really feasible. But then the fact that the Trump administration kind of stoked fears of secret agents kind of filtering in through the bloodstream of the refugees coming in like that was a huge thing and that's i mean i took legal history instead of uh international refugee for whatever reason but um we learned a lot about that in like 1924 for like immigration quotas and like messing up the bloodstream of america quote unquote and um an interesting part of that was also in the article he kind of mentions that yeah we cut the number of refugees from the middle east but europeans went up i mean this is probably like an age-old question in terms of i mean we have a problem with you know, not believing science or statistics and things like that. And it's kind of, you can have this incredible vetting process and like 99.9% of the people are fine. But then if you just have like that 0.1% that makes it on the news, like it kind of says, oh, like what this administration is saying is correct. Like there are people infiltrating the US system and et cetera, right? So like, I just was wondering your thoughts on that. Like, yeah, it's it's just a very difficult thing to kind of like wrap our heads around in terms of, um, I mean, it's just a natural like human phenomenon. So maybe we need like a psychologist to help us understand. That. But like, well, um, yeah, yeah. If you had thoughts it, on is that, is it is it just confirmation bias by people, especially in that prior administration who wanted to see this and looked for it? I mean, the fact is, Omar was innocent, and that's how hard they had to look that they had to actually set someone up with a false charge of mm-hmm. being an ISIS commander to point to one person and trumpet it in headlines across the world that they had found one person who supposedly came in that way with the intent. You know, it wasn't just that they were like, he came in and he had done this thing. I mean, they they very explicitly, they, the prior administration, the prosecutors, the media, it was pushed that Omar was here to set up a sleeper cell, okay? They had no problem setting him up with false charges, clearly disprovable charges. Mm -hmm. That's how hard they had to fight to find that one, you know, what is it? Skittle, the bad Skittle in a bag of refugees or whatever. Yeah. Um, The poison Skittle. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it turned out that Skittle wasn't poisoned. So I, I, to me, that should vindicate the refugee system and vindicate the vetting system that exists. And I don't understand why this administration doesn't see Omar's case as a real chance to say, hold up. Like they literally had to make up charges against someone to try to damn the refugee system. And by the way, two weeks after or three weeks after Omar was arrested, Secretary of State Pompeo dropped the refugee cap to the lowest it had ever been, Mm -hmm. citing Omar's case. It was not, you know, random. He was citing Omar's case as the basis for it. Mm-hmm. And here we are, right? So it, back to the mystery of why the U.S. is so dug in on this instead of seeing it as a real opportunity for reflection and rehabilitation mm-hmm. of a system in which clearly from law enforcement's position, you want to see what you want to see, mm-hmm. right? You want to see a Muslim refugee who's a terrorist you can make it happen. Yeah. You can go talk to people in the country from which he fled who will be happy to tell you he is. 
And that's exactly what happened. And what's lucky is that for Omar, I mean, it's crazy to think of luck, right? He's been sitting in custody away from his family for three years. But what's lucky is that the people who set this up pointed to a murder that had actually happened Mm -hmm. instead of just, you know, how many other murders could they have been? They could have just said, oh, he just beheaded someone or he did this. But they pointed to a murder that actually happened on an actual date at an actual time, Mm -hmm. which means that we could then have a date to say he was nowhere near there. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's why the U.S. now, I think, is going to pivot to broad, unfocused, you know, oh, Omar, he does this. Omar did that. Omar did this. Still by the same exact people who falsely accused him of committing that murder. And the question is, is that going to fly? I mean, it shouldn't fly. In a in a real system of due process, this case would be gone. Well, I think that's a good that's a good transition into my next question, which is um, for me, it was just baffling reading the New York article in terms of evidence. Like, uh, I mean, this I haven't taken evidence, but like this summer, I've been thinking a lot about evidence for some research projects and things like that. And it's like, how does any of this stand in court? You know, sometimes um, and. Part of that, I think the article kind of explains it as, well, it kind of goes through like anecdotally what happens with the witnesses and et cetera. But like there's number one, it it cites like lack of cultural understanding, which could also just be like racial or whatever, like animus, right? Like um, just kind of that bias in general. But then there's also kind of um, I think that you had just mentioned a little bit that government officials can kind of get the evidence that they want in terms of and that kind of speaks to the power disparity right like if you're a u.s official abroad in iraq or something you could probably get somebody to say something for um just given your kind of uh, difference in power so could you kind of speak to that creation of ev- evidence i guess um what sure yeah. sure there, i mean there's layers to it just like everything else with this case mm-hmm. One aspect of it we've talked about, which is kind of a rush to judgment, a wanting to see a Muslim terrorist who they could tag as an ISIS, you know, commander or ISIS infiltrator. The other side is the Iraqi side of things, a country that really wants to accomplish a successful extradition with the United States to burnish what is a seriously tarred criminal justice system um, and sort of get a big thumbs up from the U.S. We're going to send you this person. So they've said that. I mean, I'm not there. I don't have to speculate what their motive is. That's one of the motives. They've said that themselves. They want to accomplish this. Then we get down to the witnesses or the so-called witnesses, and we have to focus on the head of a militia who has collaborated with the U.S. since probably around 2003, 2004, you know, was prior to that a Ba'athist, worked for Saddam's regime, had family heavily connected with Saddam, and then jumped to the U.S. when when it made sense. I mean, really a canny survivor and um, a culture of absolute corruption over there. So this is someone who, um, I don't know if you've seen the Vice video on Omar. I have it in a tab, but I will watch it after this interview. Dude, yeah, it's going to blow your mind. (laughs) I'll Um, also link that in the description. So so you'll see this person in the video and it's like central casting. I was like, we've talked to him before and it's quite obvious what kind of person he is. And I have like sort of a begrudging respect for him as a survivor and a a person who always seems to float to the top. But he is a con man and he played the U.S. like a fiddle. And he got paid off by it. I mean, we literally know that he got paid by the FBI ultimately. Um, So he's the head of a militia. Um, He has said things 
in the Vice video, he says, I would drink Omar's blood if he was in front of me. And he went around and found witnesses to, I picture like a little van pool, like bringing them in to talk to the FBI and then taking them out. So he's, he's the FBI's guy. Mm -hmm. And he, and the FBI's there in Iraq. And they've already sort of decided we're here to, to dig up some evidence on Omar. And it's just like the perfect storm. So they meet someone who is only too happy because of some past tribal issues with the Amin family mm-hmm. to go find them some witnesses, including the person, the thoroughly discredited person who then claims to have seen Omar in the flesh there killing the victim. So this is the same crew who the government is going to try to cite as evidence in the immigration proceeding. And you you start off talking about the rules of evidence, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I think we're all like, wow, the rules of evidence, like they're here to make things fair. Mm-hmm. But they don't apply in extradition mm-hmm. and they don't apply in immigration court. Mm-hmm. So what the what the government is proposing to do next week is to insulate these liars. Mm-hmm to insulate their collusion, to insulate their um, the obvious lies that they said to the FBI by just having an FBI agent sort of summarize it. And, you know, you'll learn all about hearsay. So yeah. there's a reason that, like, in a true criminal proceeding, hearsay is not allowed. Mm-hmm. And in an immigration proceeding, they're going to go to town and... and um, that's really challenging, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're going to cite these folks who we've proven are liars and we don't get to cross-examine them. Mm-hmm. I mean, we get to cross-examine the FBI agent who then has is citing another FBI agent's report or maybe a third FBI agent's report who maybe that person talked to someone or heard about someone in Iraq, right? Mm-hmm. It's layer upon layer. And that's what Omar is confronting in immigration court. So I think that sets the stage for the news updates that people will receive uh hopefully i will and we'll add like we'll append something in the intro for the latest developments in this case so i think that um i think you've done an incredible job way better than i did in my summary of this case in terms of uh bringing us up to speed and kind of getting us to understand the complexities of the case uh we don't have that much time left so i just wanted to kind of pivot to our podcast's theme of family separation um could you kind of tell us a little bit about well, you've mentioned it a little bit in the beginning, but like Omar has been separated from his family uh, for sure. an incredibly long time. Could you? Yeah. Yeah. So Omar's youngest daughter is American. She was born here in Sacramento. She's she's a local. And she was one when Omar got arrested and she just turned four. And I have I have kids and um you know, I'm not sure this would have hit as hard before I had kids and sort of saw them grow up. And, you know, you cherish every day. And Judy, three quarters of her life, her dad has been in custody. And for huge periods of that, she couldn't even visit. because, Like, for example, now Omar is five hours away from Sacramento in a place that's not allowing social visits because of COVID. So his family hasn't seen him since... Early this year, and then that was through glass mm-hmm. at the jail. So he, so he has not had a hug, a kiss from his family in four years. I mean, three years. You know, um, I mean, since 2018. And I'm worried that that is gonna last longer too. And the strength that his family has in coping with that, and and the emotional strength that Omar has shown is truly incredible. And 
when I turn to the fact, I mean, it's bad enough, right? Even if he was guilty, it'd be bad enough. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I turn to the fact that he's innocent and we've been trying to explain that nicely to the government this whole time, it is completely heartbreaking. Yeah, I think, well, I think that that kind of pushes us to the end of this uh, episode, which is kind of, we've discussed so many difficult and complex topics today, not just uh, regarding family separation, but like the larger structure of the power of like, you know, racist fictions and non-elected government officials and government not functioning the way that it should in short, maybe. Um, But do you have any thoughts on your experience dealing with this case in terms of like, I mean, you seem very hopeful still and you've won um, (laughs) at least small victories, right? So um, do you have any thoughts on that vis-a-vis this larger, you know, like structure that we've talked about? And then after that, I guess just any kind of anything that listeners can do, um, whether that's small or larger scale, like more existential or just uh, immediate action steps. Either of those are. Yeah. I mean, in this case, justice is a tiny flame that we've been trying to keep alive this whole time. And as long as Omar's still in the United States and we can still fight for his freedom and his life, that flame is alive. Right. And, um, and what's galling is that we shouldn't be the ones who are fighting for justice. Prosecutors are supposed to seek justice, too, mm-hmm. right? The U.S. government is supposed to seek justice. This is not a unilateral thing where we seek justice and they just get to laugh it off. And they have abdicated that. And I really, really believe in, and that prosecutors should really believe in doing the right thing. And they haven't, and they aren't, and they won't, is what I'm realizing. Mm-hmm. Like, doesn't matter. They just won't. So we are keeping some hope alive, but it is a challenge. And I think one thing that hugely helps is having people understand that and, and you know, support Omar. We have a hashtag, Free Omar Amin. Um, we, we tweet, we post, we ask for people to call their elected officials. We don't want this case to be forgotten. It's insane to win an extradition and then feel like, you're climbing the same mountain all over again. Our website, uh, which is freeomarmean.com, um, has lots of ways that folks can help. And I've seen people from all over the country help. I mean, I, I've had folks uh, write their congresspeople and CC me and get me a conversation mm. with staffers because a constituent in a completely different place cared about this case. I think that's the only way to get any kind of accountability is to push this to people who care about justice. And right now, I don't know who those people are, but we clearly haven't talked to them yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I have hope that there will be people who will care. And I, I think you get this to the right person, the answer should be outrage. Mm-hmm. The answer should be outrage on the part of the government And, you know, we see that in exonerations of people who have been in for 30 years on crimes they didn't commit. We shouldn't have to wait 30 years. This is happening now. This is happening in slow motion right in front of everyone's eyes. And we can stop it now. Mm -hmm. But we haven't yet. And we just need help. Yeah. If you can send me all of those resources for like action steps, we can kind of post that um, and also put that in our description. But um, I think just as closing, I think that that was what you said is really powerful, mostly because um, at the end of our episode, sometimes it feels like we can't do anything. <laughs> like uh, it just <laughs> so many problems, so many families separated, et cetera. But I think this case in particular, I uh, was really, I mean, excited about is a weird word to use because, you know, 
tragic, but excited about the fact that, you know, we can do something tangibly about this one case. And as you mentioned, it kind of does affect all of these other cases. Like it's not just, I mean, Omar is Omar, but there are many other Omars. Um, so I think that that was kind there's, of... There's another Omar in Phoenix right now, Ali El Nuri, who right after the New Yorker article came out, got arrested here in the U.S. Uh, on the same types of trumped up charges. And he just had his extradition hearing, I think, a week ago. Mm. And that's that just points to the need for really broader attention to them. But it is, that's the hope, right? Like, we're dealing with this now. And I, I try not to get caught up in it, but I can picture someday being able to welcome Omar coming out of custody. I'm not sure I thought that we could do that prior to winning the extradition case because the law was hor so horrible. Mm. As crazy as immigration court is and as challenging as it is, the opportunity to fight is much broader in immigration court. So, yeah, I have hope and I, I there's a lot of ways to help. So I will send you all that stuff and I welcome it. And people can reach out to me directly mm -hmm. at my work email if they want to help. I mean, really, I welcome it. Thank you. Yeah. And I think the last thing is just that you had mentioned that finding this quote unquote poisonous skittle, like creating the poisonous skittle, I guess, in terms of refugees, like you have a, um, you just kind of create the thing that you don't want. Um, you mentioned that the government did that to show everybody that the system is flawed and that these people are, I mean, like racial animus can be justified, et cetera. Um, and I think this is a good opportunity to show that that's like, turn that on its head, like <laughs> that that's not right. the case. Um, so yeah, well, there thank was, you. So oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say that was the year of the Muslim ban too. So mm -hmm. that, you know, it was, it was Omar it was vulnerable to this in so many ways of being a Muslim man from Iraq, from the Anbar province, a refugee and Honestly, if the U.S. does this, like the U.S. is doing this, but if they succeed, every refugee should be terrified because mm -hmm. what we have is the country that's supposed to protect Omar in cahoots with the country that persecuted him. Mm -hmm. And that just like, you know, speaking yeah. of international refugee law, that's not how it's supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. And yet it's happening and nothing in our system so far has stopped it from happening. And that points to a huge structural flaw in our system. Mm -hmm. And just a, a structural flaw in our government that there's no accountability for that. So every refugee, I mean, imagine, you know, people should be nervous. This is a bad look. Yeah. And then I just wanted to kind of end with you said there's no accountability, but we are supposed to be the accountability. So <laughs> I'm going to kind of end that let's on a, be. yeah, let's, let's end this on a positive note there. Yes. Um, yes. But thank you so much for your time. I know you're Oh, thank you, Eugene. Busy. Yeah, it was really nice talking with you. Thank you, listeners. Appreciate it. listening and if you're interested in hearing more stories of family separation please follow us on instagram at divided families podcast if you enjoyed this episode please rate us on apple podcasts and you can follow us on your preferred streaming platform thanks as always to flannel albert for the music and see you next time